0: All right, good morning. We are in Romans chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there this morning. Romans chapter 2. We'll finish the chapter this morning. We're going to pick up in verse 25. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. It says... For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law for no one is a jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical but a jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from god all right so now we're to the very last paragraph of chapter 2, and Paul is going to deal here one more time with sort of the final objection to those who see themselves as so thoroughly religious that they don't need the gospel. The issue is the Jewish sacrament of circumcision and the accompanying claim that all those who have been circumcised will be saved, which is what the Jewish people believed. I'll show you that in a moment. We could summarize this section of Romans or even title the sermon as the false security of ceremony. The false security of ceremony. You see, this is, in a way, the last resort for the Jewish person. The Jew who was considered a thoroughly religious person in Paul's day, had begun his defense against Paul's gospel by saying that he or she had already possessed the law. And as we learned last week, Paul argued that possession of the law, although undoubtedly a great privilege, is of no value if the one possessing that law doesn't keep it. The law says, this is Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, says that you should not steal. But knowing that is no help if you do steal. For then the law condemns you rather than exonerates you. That's what Paul was teaching last week. It's the same with other commandments that we looked at last week. You shall not commit adultery, which is verse 14 of Exodus 20. Or you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 3 of Exodus 20. You see, the Jew, along with everybody else, had broken those laws. So it really wasn't sufficient for them to say, I have the law, and therefore I don't need the gospel. On the contrary, the law is given to reveal to us our need for God's grace. Still, the Jew of that day had one last card to play, one final argument against Paul. He had been circumcised, and circumcision brought with it, it it brought him into the visible outward community of God, the fellowship with the body of covenant people to whom God had made all of these salvation promises. It was like saying that circumcision, or today we could say baptism, made them a member of that body and that membership in that body guaranteed their salvation. That was the argument of the Jewish people. The Jew really did believe that. Just as very many people today believe that being a member of a church guarantees their salvation. Charles Hodge was a Reformed Presbyterian theologian. He attended Princeton, which actually was founded to equip Presbyterian ministers. Then after graduating from college, he attended Princeton Theological Seminary and later taught there. He compiled some writings of Jewish leaders saying just this, that circumcision guarantees your salvation. Listen to some of this. This is a summary of some of his writings. Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary on the books of Moses, says, our rabbins, which is really kind of old speech way of saying rabbis, so our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. In the Jalkut Rabbani, it is taught that circumcision saves from hell. And in the Midrash Telem, it says, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. And in a book titled, Akadoth Jezek, it is taught that Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. This argument is that salvation is for Jews and that what makes one a Jew is circumcision. So I guess the question is, what really does make someone a Jew? And Paul's answer is, is quite radical. He's going to state that circumcision, while an act of obedience for the Jewish person, and being symbolic in ways of man's sinfulness and his need to be cleansed, has no spiritual power. It was an outward symbol. What a stark difference from the quotes of those Jewish teachers that I just read to you. But notice Paul here, who's dealing with salvation, doesn't say that one does not have to be a Jew to be saved. He doesn't make that argument at this point. What he states is what a true Jew is. It's not a matter of external criteria such as possession of the law... Or descent from Abraham, or circumcision, or anything else, but it's a matter of conduct which flows from spiritual changes within. Verse 28 For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. It's the same truth we found earlier in Romans chapter 2. God's concern is not merely with our knowledge of our of truth, but with our doing it. You remember these verses, verses 1 through 3. Therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's what you do. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? It isn't a matter of just having the law, but of obeying its precepts. Later in verse 21, this is what we looked at last week. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Again, the emphasis is on what you do. William Barclay says this. Jewishness, Paul insists, is not a matter of race at all. Jewishness has nothing to do with circumcision. Jewishness is a matter of conduct. If that is so, there is many a so-called Jew who is a pure descendant of Abraham and who bears the mark of circumcision in his body who is no Jew at all. And equally, there is many a Gentile who never heard of Abraham and who would never dream of being circumcised who is a Jew in the real sense of the term. With one stroke, Paul was abolishing the very basis of Jewish thought. He was shutting out from real Jewishness many and many a Jew, and he was introducing a new conception which made Jewishness a thing available to every nation, a thing as wide As the earth itself. And I think to properly understand that, we need to understand the significance of this term, being a Jew, and that is that they were God's chosen people. Paul is saying that to be God's chosen people is much more than an external mark upon your body, it's much more than knowing God's law, it's keeping it. But let's be honest for a minute, we probably need to retreat a little bit to some relevant reality for us. I mean, most of you are not personally affected by any contemporary debate over the definition of a true Jew. I bet not very many of you talked about that over Thanksgiving dinner. It doesn't rise to the level of our conversation very often. But the matter of godly conduct accomplished in us by the work of the Holy Spirit, there in verse 29, should be a concern for us. Paul is teaching here that the substance of pleasing God is doing His will, it's not just knowing His will, but it's obedience to His will. And he says this circumcision that you Jews boast of is just a symbolic reminder of that. Why is this important? Why is it important for us? I mean, maybe you can understand Paul's logic in teaching this to the Jews in Rome, but why is it important for us? Charles Hodge says this, whenever true religion declines... The disposition to lay undue stress on external rights is stressed. The Jews, when they lost their spirituality, they supposed that their circumcision had the power to save them. We could put it this way apostasy, that falling away or departing from true faith, always moves the religious focus from the inward to the outward. From humble obedience to empty formality. That's what the Jews suffered from when Paul was writing to them. But Paul's not the only one to warn them of this. They had always taken great pride in their lineage, in their heritage. But John the Baptist had warned them many years earlier about trusting in this Jewish heritage. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, he says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. That's pretty pretty stark and sort of in your face. God could make these rocks children of Abraham. Please don't boast in that. The lesson today is that Even religious ceremony cannot save you. I mean, what are you trusting? We'll kind of end with this later, but are you trusting in something you did in church? Maybe you came from another denomination and you trust in your confirmation. Or maybe you were baptized as a baby and you trust in that. Or maybe you were baptized as an adult and trust in that. Paul here is teaching that Ceremony is of no value. What is of value is what is in, on the inside. So let's we'll talk about that. As I want to take a, just a few moments today to summarize chapter 2. We've now finished it. So what are some of the key points we can take from chapter 2? I mean, the apostle began dealing with people who would agree that, hey, you should preach this to those pagans those sinners that you talked about in chapter 1, but you must excuse us from your condemnation because either we're very moral, that is, we have higher standards of behavior, we know what they're doing is wrong, or we're very religious. We know what the law says. It was given to us. We have a relationship with God in a covenant And we participate in sacraments like circumcision in this text. Do you know people like that? I think you probably do, people that trust in some of these things. You may even be one of them. Here's what Paul says to these kind of people. The first thing he says is knowledge alone, even knowledge of the highest spiritual and moral principles does not win God's approval If it was only that easy, we could just buy another book and learn, or watch a video and learn. But on the contrary, superior knowledge leads to greater condemnation if it's not accompanied by adherence to the law that we now know obedience. See, both the moral pagan and the Orthodox Jew were found wanting, not because they didn't have a moral code but because having that code, they failed to live up to it. In verses 1 through 3 that we already read, it says the pagan did the same things that he was judging others for. And then the Jew, likewise, it said they were breaking the law, and that brought dishonor to God in verse 23. So knowledge alone is not going to do it. The second thing we learn is that membership in a religious society whether that was the covenant nation of Israel or maybe it's in the visible church today in Christianity, does not guarantee that we have obtained God's favor. Now, I'm not at all standing here preaching against being involved in the local church. Of course not. It's not that that is unimportant. It is. But salvation is not by any external associations. It's not based on who you hang out with on Sunday mornings, we've already covered the fact that God doesn't even look at the outward appearance of man, but at his heart. We learned that in the selection of David as king of Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, Jews have been saved and are being saved, but it's not because they're Jewish. And church members have been saved and are being saved, but it's not because they're church members. I mean, if any of us could perfectly keep the law of God, then we'd be saved by keeping it. But none of us can. We've all broken it. Therefore, we can only be saved one way. We can only be saved as a result of Christ's death on the cross and the application of that work to us by the Holy Spirit. This alone brings us into the true company of God's elect people. And that alone develops a life consistent with our new identity. So it's not because you're Jewish. It's not because you're a church member. It's because of Christ's work on the cross that you can be saved. The third truth that we've learned here in Romans chapter 2, is that the sacraments or the ceremonies, either of the Old Testament period or of the New Testament period, can save no one. They may point to what saves, but they're not the reality in themselves. I mean, the Jews, as we learn today, trusted in their circumcision. And we've already mentioned many religious people today trust in religious things. Maybe you trust in the fact that you can come down and take communion. Well, oh, friend, communion does not save you. The ordinances that we observe at this church do not save. But they can confirm our faith and they do present and illustrate great spiritual truth. But we do not put our trust in them for salvation. That was part of Paul's teaching today. The fourth thing that chapter 2 teaches us is that God judges according to truth and performance. And by that standard, every human being is condemned. God judges according to truth and performance. And by that standard, every human being is condemned. Well, we don't like the last half of that statement, do we? But it's really, it's really hard to argue with the first half. Would it be right for God to judge us in any other way than the highest and most righteous fashion? Could He judge in any way other than by truth? Could He admit falsehood and deception? Could He allow pretense or wishful thinking or mere intentions rather than actual deeds to be the basis of our judgment? Could he overlook sin? What if a person's a Jew? What if they're a church member? What if they know better? Could he overlook sin in those cases? Obviously, none of these perversions of justice can occur with God. Though they're very common in our judicial system today. So if you believe the first half of that sentence is true, then you have to understand that of ourselves, no human being will be justified. It takes another way. As we get down to the end here, I'm going to ask our praise team to return to the stage to prepare to close. The fifth thing that we learn here from Romans 2, is if we are to be saved, it must be by the labor of Jesus Christ. And that is applied to us through the Father, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, when David sinned, you know, his famous sin with Bathsheba, you can find in Psalm 51, his confession to God. But even that, he knew that it wasn't just the power of the confession alone that would save him. On the contrary, he looked to God. In verse 7, he prayed first, purge me with hyssop. Now, hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice of these animals used in Jewish sacrificial systems. So this was a plea to God for cleansing by the blood of the atonement. The second thing he added was, create in me a clean heart, in verse 10. And in the very next verse, he makes clear that he knows that it is the Holy Spirit that does this. He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So if we were to be saved, it must be by the work of Jesus Christ. These are the truths of Romans chapter 2. So what will you take from them? Well, I hope if you forget everything else, that you will remember this. If you are looking to anything other than Jesus for your salvation, Paul is teaching here that first, you're sadly mistaken. And second, that you will be ultimately, tragically disappointed. I mean, do you trust in your knowledge of God's truth or of his law? Paul says that's not enough. It's obedience that matters, and yours is lacking. Do you trust in some religious ceremony? Today's text teaches that those don't save. You need another way. And that way is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. But it's almost insulting to just call Jesus another way. He's the only way. In John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Paul's been teaching through all of Romans 2. All of these things that you think will save you will not It's only the gospel. It's only Jesus Christ who is the way and the truth and the life. Won't you trust him today? Let's pray.